Good morning. We'd like to welcome you here to the house of the Lord as we come together as his people. Please stand and join us as we begin by singing our praises to him. Fear it. He's calling you tonight. 
God, you are great, and we gather today to worship you, to offer our lives to you, and to engage with one another in um, giving all that we are, worship, every part of our being to you. Thank you for being present with us today. Be glorified in our worship, and we pray this through Christ. Share a word of greeting with those who are here in worship today. Hey, Troy, how you doing? Hey, well, I'll you're a good father. Well, welcome uh, to worship today. Happy Father's Day to uh, those of you to whom that applies. And I hope you have the opportunity to spend a little time with family on this special day. We're glad that you're here. And just a few things to highlight. Tonight at 7 o'clock, you're invited to the Fillmore Baccalaureate Service, which will take place at the school auditorium. And you see information in the bulletin about that. Next Sunday morning, we begin Summer Sabbath, and that means that we have one worship service at 10 o'clock, so just note that schedule change as uh, we begin the summer, service, summer Sabbath schedule, and you see that listed in the bulletin. You see other upcoming events. Uh, also, next Sunday, we have some folks who are going to be baptized in the 10 o'clock service. Uh, if you are interested in that, let me know right away. We have, a, we have a class schedule for this week to prepare folks for that event. 
And uh, also there are a number of prayer concerns in the bulletin related to needs connected to us here as well as things around the world. And we continue to remember these uh, concerns in our uh, lives and in our worship. God has blessed us and we have the opportunity to give back to him. We're going to ask the ushers to come now and assist us in the giving of our tithes and offerings.
Please be seated. It's easy to take for granted sometimes the, um, the privilege of prayer. And uh, it just becomes a part of our lives and we, we do that and, and it's good. Sometimes it's important to just stop and realize the grace of God to us that gives us the assurance that He hears our prayers, He invites us to pray. And things change when we pray through the grace of God. As we pray together this morning and unite our hearts in prayer, if you'd like to come and use the altar rail as a place where you offer your prayers, please come and join me. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your grace poured out in our lives. You do not give us just trickles of grace, but abundant grace. Your grace doesn't come to us because we have earned it, we've lived up to some standard We're good enough. But you pour out your grace because you are gracious and merciful and loving. And your grace is to us, whether we deserve it or not. Father, this morning as we come to pray, we come in the spirit of your grace. We come acknowledging how much we need your grace in our lives. And in fact, we come today acknowledging the struggles that we have. The struggles with our attitudes. Struggles in our actions. The struggles of knowing what is right and not doing it. Father, we pray for your forgiving grace in our hearts, in our spirits, in every part of our being. We thank you for your forgiveness. We claim that forgiveness in every part of our lives and our being today. Father, we pray for your grace on all of us and the needs that we represent. We think especially this morning of those who are grieving and ask for your comforting grace in their hearts. We pray, Father, for your grace on all who are struggling with issues of health. We ask for your mercy, for your healing grace in each one of them. We pray, Father, for your grace upon your people who are serving you around the world. We think especially of our brothers and sisters in Eritrea. We think especially of these men who 
in the process of ordination have been arrested and incarcerated because of their faith in you. We pray, Lord, that you will protect them, that you will give them courage and strength in the face of great hardship. We pray, Father, that you will be revealed through their lives, through their witness, and that you will bring your grace to bear upon them and their situation and all those that they encounter. Father, on this day when we honor earthly fathers, we give you thanks for the gift and the grace of family. We understand that our fathers are not perfect. None of us are. Because of that, for some of us, maybe thinking about fathers is not a source of joy, but actually a source of pain and struggle. For others, the word brings images of love and joy and security. Father, in whatever situation we may find ourselves, we pray that you will fill us with a sense of your presence in our families. Help us more than anything else to see you as our loving Heavenly Father. And for those of us who are fathers, help us to live so close to you that we continually reveal you to our children, to our families, in every way that we possibly can. Father, thank you for hearing our prayers. We offer our prayers to you in the name of, through the power of, your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who teaches us the model for prayer which we now pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. The scripture reading this morning is Luke 15, verses 1 through 32. Following the scripture reading, children ages 2 through 5 are dismissed for Children's Church, which meets on the first floor of the Christian Education Building. Following the tradition of the church, I invite you to stand for the reading of the gospel. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he, leave the 99 in the op- Does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? 
And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman who has 10 silver coins and loses one. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. 
May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Stir our affections to love you more. Turn our attentions from this empty world. Help us count all things for your name loves. That we may know you more and the glory of the cross. Come change our hearts. Come change our hearts. Come change our hearts. Come change our hearts. May we believe you satisfy more than anything. May we respond to Jesus.
Father, come and change our hearts this morning. Amen. Happy Father's Day. It's good to be with you this morning. I want to take a second to say thank you for the many uh, cards and the, just the congratulations and your outpouring of support on the recent, my recent uh, graduation. Uh, we feel very blessed to be a part of this community, so thank you very much. Uh, several months ago, <clears throat> I was challenged by reading this little book by Tim Keller, The Prodigal God, and it really, it really uh, impacted me. And as I was reading, it made me think about uh, uh, Carlos Gildemeister. We've been friends a long time, Carlos and I. And uh, it reminded me of the differences in our faith stories. In the parable that we typically call the prodigal son, Jesus begins by saying a man had two sons. And Carlos had sort of a younger son, prodigal type experience. He, he came to faith in his late teens. And I know that many of you are... Uh, also have this type of story of encountering and understanding God's love for you at a later time in life. And because of that, you have a clear sense of the contrast of what your life was like before and what it's like now with Jesus in your life. And in some ways, I envy that understanding. My mom, or my own experience, is more like that of the elder son. My mom tells me that I gave my life to Jesus when I was very little, four, five years old. And I'm sure that the life of crime that I gave up to make that decision, you know, in the toddler mafia, <clears throat> I'm sure it was significant, but I just don't remember it. I've always lived with the awareness of God's love and the understanding that Jesus' sacrifice made possible my relationship with God. And I just wonder sometimes what it's like to know that contrast. Now, Soren Kierkegaard, the great philosopher, said that if you live in a place where being a Christian is the norm, it's the accepted thing, then the first thing you have to do in order to help someone become a Christian is to first help them to lose their Christianity. You have to separate sort of the trappings of religion from the core, what, what's really important. In his time, if you walked down the street, you could stop somebody and say, hey, are you a Christian? And they would say, of course I am. I was born here. I'm a Danish citizen. I go to that state church down the street, and, and I even sing in the choir. But we know, don't we, that simply being born in a certain place, like you know, here in Houghton, which is a great place, and attending the Houghton Wesleyan Church every week, and even singing in the choir doesn't make you a Christian. Those aren't the things that make you a Christian. Uh, now, in addition to this book, there are two other little books I wanted to just make you aware of that kind of helped inform this this, uh, this sermon this morning, and if you want to do some extra reading, these are great books, okay? The Prodigal God by Tim Keller, Henry Nouwen's The Return of the Prodigal Son, fantastic, both very easy reads, and uh, those are both in our library too, by the way. And this one, Frederick Buechner's little book, Telling the Truth, which is a, a great little book. I read this every year before I preach, uh, you know, in the month or so before. So, so if you want to do some extra reading, those are ones you want to pick up. Now, we just read this passage, and so I won't take time to reread it. But I want you to see an important detail here. In the first three verses, Luke gives a description of what's going on. He says, the tax collectors and the sinners have come to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes complain. They said, 
This man welcomes sinners and he even eats with them. And so Jesus responds by telling these three little parables in this chapter. So there are two groups of people here in front of Jesus on this bright, dusty, hot, first century Palestine day. And they exist at two ends of the religiosity spectrum, if that's a word, the moral, the moral spectrum. On this side, there are people who know they are far from God. They are the sinners, the addicts, the prostitutes, the criminals, the politicians. <laughs> Present company excluded. If there's any politicians here. And on the other end, there are those who've grown up in the church. They've gone to the best schools. They're pastors and priests. They're professors of religion. They've never had so much as a detention or a parking ticket or any other blemish on their personal moral record. These are the people who know they are doing what they're supposed to do. Now, just out of curiosity, where do you fit on that spectrum? Where, where would you place yourself? And you don't have to say it out loud. Okay. And, I, and I know that we can't reduce people to a number, right? I mean, we're very complex individuals. But just for the sake of argument, let's say it was a scale of 1 to 10. <clears throat> 1 being the most lost person you can think of. And 10 being the best and most spiritual person you can think of. Where are you? What's your number? So anyway, there are these two groups of people. And it's interesting and it's important to remember that it's the complaint from the Pharisees that prompts these stories from Jesus. In the first two parables, Jesus emphasizes God's joy when a lost one is found. The shepherd searches for the lost sheep, and the woman searches for the lost coin, and they demonstrate that God is in the business of pursuing the lost and celebrating their return. But it's in the third parable, the parable of the lost son, that the story takes an unexpected twist. And this parable is a drama in two acts, and the first act is the well-known prodigal son. And as we've just read, the younger son comes to his dad one day, and he says, in effect, Dad... I am tired of waiting for you to die so that I can have your money. Give me what's mine. I am out of here. It would be hard to think of a more insulting and demeaning and arrogant or painful thing for a young man to say or do to his father. And more surprisingly, in, instead of a beating or a, or a summary execution or even a phone call to the lawyer to have him written out of his will, the father, at great cost to himself, he probably had to sell off a large amount of his physical holdings. He does what the younger son asks. He gives it to him. And Beekner describes what follows in this way. And I love the way he does this. The prodigal son goes off with his inheritance and blows the whole pile on liquor and sex and fancy clothes until finally he doesn't have two cents left to rub together and he has to go to work or starve to death. He gets a job on a pig farm and keeps at it long enough to observe that the pigs are getting a better deal than he is and then he decides to go home. There's nothing edifying about his decision. There's no indication that he realizes he's made a donkey of himself. And broken his old man's heart. 
No indication that he thinks of his old man as anything more than a meal ticket. There's no sign that he's sorry for what he's done or that he's resolved to make amends somehow and do better next time. He decides to go home for the simple reason that he knows he always got three squares a day at home. And for a man who's starving, that is reason enough. So he sets out on the return trip. And on the way, he rehearses the speech that he hopes will soften his old man's heart and keep him from slamming the door in his face. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. That will hit him where he lives, if anything will. The boy thinks, and then he goes over it again. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Trying to get the inflection and the gestures right. Just about the time he thinks he has it down, the old man spots him coming around the corner below the tennis court and starts sprinting down the drive like a maniac. Before the boy has time to get so much as the first word out, the old man throws his arm around him and all but knocks him off his feet with the tears and the whiskers and the incredulous laughter of his welcome. The boy is back. That's all that matters. Who cares why he's back? And the old man doesn't do what any other father under heaven would have been inclined to do. He doesn't say he hopes he's learned his lesson or I told you so. He doesn't say he hopes he's finally ready to settle down for a while and will find some way to make it up to his mother. He just says, bring him something to eat for God's sake. Bring him some warm clothes to put on. And when the boy finally manages to slip his prepared remarks in edgewise, the old man doesn't even hear him. He's in such a state. All he can say is, the boy was dead and he's alive. The boy was lost, and he's found. And then, at the end of the scene, Jesus says, They began to make merry. Merry of all things. They turn on the stereo, they break out the best scotch, they roll back the living room carpet, and they ring up the neighbors. They're obviously not Wesleyan. As in the two parables that precede this one, the lost sheep and the lost coin, the father throws a party. This younger son has rejected the father and humiliated him. He's left home and wasted fully one half of the father's considerable goods. All of this in a fruitless and empty search for himself. And even as he he comes home, the younger son's motives may be a bit suspect. Now one says, there is repentance but not a repentance in the light of the immense love of a forgiving God. It is a self-serving repentance that offers the possibility of survival. The father, however, seems not to care one fig about motives, about money, about his own dignity, or the previous offense. He says, it's time to celebrate. This son of mine was dead, and he's alive. He was lost, and he's found. And so the party begins. It's a fantastic picture of unconditional love, of redemption, and grace. God the Father welcomes home the lost sinner into his kingdom. One person that I talked to this past week said, which of us has not pictured ourselves as that lost son at one time or another? And I think that God's grace towards sinners is the point of this parable, except for one thing, one little caveat. This is not a message for the sinners in Jesus' audience that day. This is aimed directly at the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes, the elder brother types. 
And so let's move on to act two, the elder brother. And when the prodigal returns, the elder brother is exactly where he's supposed to be, right? He's out in the field, on the tractor, doing the work of the father. And he's out there driving along and he suddenly becomes aware of a sound that's been intruding on his consciousness for the last hour or so. Sounds like music. He stops the tractor and he listens. Yeah, it's music. There's music. So he drives the tractor over to the hill that overlooks the ranch house and he looks down. And sure enough, there is something going on down there. There's cars all over the lawn. The, the barbecue is heated up and cooking. There's something big on it, cooking. And he's like, what in the world? A ranch hand drives by and he says, hey, wait, what's going on at the house? And the guy says, your brother has come home. He's back and your dad's throwing a huge party. We're barbecuing that big beef steer we've been saving for your graduation from seminary. <laughs> right? And the older brother is angry, white hot anger. That brother, that stinking no good brother, my, my dad has finally lost it. Verse 28 says, the older brother is angry and he will not go in. He drives the tractor down to the barn. He parks it there and as the day falls, he sits down on a bale of hay and he chews on his, you know, a piece of straw. And he just sits there angry, muttering, refusing to go in. He remains on the outside and we say, wait a minute, wait. What just happened here? The younger brother who is rebellious, who is admittedly sinful, who has dubious motives, he's part of the kingdom. He's in the party. And the elder brother who has never disobeyed, who has in his own words slaved for the father, he's out. What is going on? In contrasting these two stories, Jesus is flipping what we know about sin on its ear. Tim Keller says, nearly everyone defines sin as breaking a list of rules. Jesus, though, shows us that a man who has violated virtually nothing on the list of moral misbehaviors can be every bit as spiritually lost as the most immoral person. The elder son is excluded from the father's party, from the kingdom. He excludes himself. And why does he do it? What's his reason for not going in? In verse 29, he gives the reason. He says, all these years I've been slaving for you and I have never disobeyed your orders. His perfect moral record, his accomplishments, his shiny new master's degree, these are the things that stand between him and God. His words are very telling. The father calls him son, he calls himself slave. He's rejecting relationship with the father in favor of his list of accomplishments. And so it turns out that the two sons are not all that different after all. The younger son wants the stuff, the blessings that the father can give him, and so he goes and asks for it. The elder son wants the blessings the father can give him, and so he works for it. Both want the blessings of the father. Neither seems to care very much about the father himself. Now again, I imagine this scene, and Jesus is standing there in front of the sinners. 
that we described in the first part of the chapter. The morally bankrupt. And it's interesting, if you read the previous chapter, the very last line in the previous chapter, Jesus is telling parables and he ends with, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And the very first verse in this chapter, it says, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. And so Jesus is standing there looking at them and they're looking up at him and they're drinking in his words because like Peter, they know where else can we go? You have the words of life. And off to the side, standing under the shade of that building right there, there are the scribes and the Pharisees. They're close enough so they can hear what's being said, but not so close that they'll be associated with anybody in that crowd. And they're muttering, and they're complaining, and they're angry, and they are refusing to be in. And Jesus hears them, and so he launches into the parables, and he talks about the shepherd who loses the sheep and leaves the 99 who are safe and goes and pursues the one. And he finds them, and he brings them in, and there's great rejoicing. And then the woman who loses her coin, a coin which probably has both sentimental and monetary value, and she pulls out all the stops, she lights the lamp, she sweeps the entire house, and she searches until she finds it. And again, she calls in her neighbors and her friends, And they have a great celebration. And I imagine Jesus, as he's talking, slowly shifting his orientation until now he's facing the scribes and the Pharisees. And he begins the story of the lost son. And which son is it that's lost here? Which son is pursued? It's not the younger son. He has come home. He's in the party. It's not the people sitting at Jesus' feet for the purpose of listening to him. They're right where they need to be. The shepherd pursues the lost sheep. The woman pursues the coin. And the father, again, flying in the face of dignity, of tradition, and of honor, goes out into the field, in verse 28, and pursues the elder brother. And I imagine Jesus standing now with his hand extended to the Pharisees saying, Come into the kingdom. These people who are planning to kill him, he's appealing to them. Release your pride. Release your faith in your heritage. This life of joyless duty and arrogant moral drudgery. And embrace your relationship with the Father. I think we're typically less inclined to see ourselves in the older brother. I know I am. It's not a pretty picture, right? But I think sometimes if we're honest, we can see his marks, his footprint in our lives. And especially, I think, if we've grown up in the church and we don't have that contrast, the before and after picture. Now it says there are many elder brothers who are lost while still at home. And it's a lostness that's characterized by judgment and condemnation. By anger and resentment, bitterness and jealousy that is so pernicious and so damaging to the human heart. And the elder brother shows up in us when we see very clearly the sins of others. The elder brother says, this son of yours who has spent your money on prostitutes. We see other sins and are quick to note our own pretty good record in comparison. And that line of thinking in time 
we even begin to question whether or not certain people or certain people who have committed certain sins should be part of our gathering. We just prayed the Lord's Prayer in that line. We prayed, forgive us our debt as we forgive our debtors. As we forgive. That doesn't mean sort of while we're attempting to forgive. or It means in the same way, to the same degree that we forgive others. The elder brother's inability to forgive produced in himself the inability to be forgiven. He excludes himself. And when we sit in judgment on others, we exclude ourselves from the love of the Father. But when we relinquish our need for judgment, we free ourselves from that weight and can fully embrace the forgiveness that God offers us through Jesus. Now, the elder brother also shows up in us connected to our sense of fairness and achievement. My father passed away several years ago after a, a long, years-long uh, battle with illness. And it was very painful to watch, watching him go through that. And there were times when I was angry with God. And I remember questioning the fairness of it all. You know, telling God about my father's long record of serving him. And how is this fair? Do you see the implications there? God, all these years, we've slaved for you. The elder brother's theology of merit-based salvation forced him to be stuck outside the party. He said, that's not fair. Your grace is not fair. And so, despite the father's pleas for him to set aside his self-righteousness and be welcomed in, to be loved, to be part of the kingdom, he refused. And at the end of the passage, interestingly enough, the story's left open-ended. We don't know what happens. As far as we know, the older brother's still in the barn. And Jesus, that invitation is still extended. C.S. Lewis said, in The Great Divorce, he said, in the end, there will be two kinds of people. Those who say to God, your will be done. And there will be those to whom God says, your will be done. Now, the younger brother here is a beautiful picture of redemption. Human beings are designed for relationship with the Father. And rejecting that design results only in empty brokenness, in isolation, and pain. God's ridiculous, unreasonable, all-encompassing, unconditional love for humans who turn to him leaps off the pages there in that first parable, in that parable. And if you are far from God, God is waiting for you with open arms. For the elder brother in us and among us, God is calling you and I to give up our need to sit in judgment on people around us. To forsake our merit-generating good works and our our faith-brutalizing theological accuracy. To let go of our stellar moral record, all of which have the potential to become attempts to manipulate God. Instead, our Heavenly Father is calling us to warm and joyful relationship with Him. He says, Rejoice with me when the lost sheep is found. Celebrate when a sinner comes to repentance. Let's have a party. As in the parable, the Father's hand is extended to you. What will you do? Will you pray with me?
Father, we are amazed by your great love for us and the extent to which you pursue us. I pray, Father, that we would be open to that work in our lives. Amen. Please stand as we sing together. was lost in darkest night, yet thought I knew the way. The sin that promised joy and life had led me to the grave. I had no hope that you
receive the benediction. Know that your heavenly Father loves you. May you live this week in the joy of that relationship. Amen.